I'm going to start by reading a couple verses from 1 Peter 4, because I do think it gives us some good context for why the saints of Asian Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, why those saints needed comfort. And Peter writes to them in 1 Peter 4, verses 3 and 4, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of, of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking par- parties, and abominable idolatries. He's saying, the time has passed. You, you, you used to do those things. And then verse 4. In all this, they, the Gentiles, those who don't have God, are surprised that you don't run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. In America, many adults don't face that same kind of surprise for what they don't do. Many aren't maligned because they don't drink or carouse or go to drinking parties or abominable idolatries. Now, that may be what some of you experience, but many of you don't experience that. Your coworkers and neighbors really aren't interested in whether you do those things. They don't care what movies you see or what parties you go to. You're not necessarily separated because of what you don't do. But that's not the case for many students. It's not the case for many students, and particularly in public schools. It's not the case for many students in college. I think lots of us remember our college days, especially if we went to state schools, what life was like in those campuses. I lived on the dorms. Imagine the world of Asia Minor, like living in the dorms of a public campus living in the dorms of a public campus. But instead of only parties and sex outside of marriage, there's also cultic worship that you're expected to be participating in, where there's all kinds of prostitution going on. And there was also requirement of emperor worship. So imagine that party lifestyle accompanied by this cultic prostitution, this emperor worship, and you get a little bit of the flavor of what Asia Minor was like. New converts, just like a new convert living in a dorm on a state school, needed to count the cost of what? What would the lost world around them think of their believing in Christ? Of saying that he's the only way to be made right with God? Of their being publicly baptized and aligning themselves with Christ? Of their holy living and their subsequent proclamation of Jesus Christ? They knew as they were aligning themselves with Christ, they would suffer rejection. They were separating themselves from the world. So for that reason, Peter comforted these suffering, sojourning saints of Asia Minor. Saints who had set apart Christ as Lord. And we've been reading about that comfort in 1 Peter 3, 17 to 22. He does, he does encourage them as we start this uh, to make sure that you're suffering for actually doing good and, and, and not for evil. We looked at last week from verses 18 to, to 20, and we're going to follow this this week from the middle of 20 to 22. But I'll start reading in verse 17. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. There's a lot of comfort from this verse. Let's open with prayer. Now, Father, we thank you for your word that you have preserved for us through many different means. Lord, we are privileged to have it in in, in our language, to be able to open it. And we pray, Father, that we would get from your word what you want us to. And convinced that uh, Peter wanted these, these, these saints who were living as strangers in, in, in a world that was, that was opposed to them and offended by what they didn't do, that he wanted them to be comforted. So we pray, Lord, and we want that same kind of comfort. 
We want to be comforted by what is true about how Christ is victorious, about the salvation that we have through his resurrection from the dead. So, Lord, I do pray that you would bring us comfort. I know that different, uh, that different among us are going through different levels of suffering for their allegiance to Christ, Lord. That even some of our, our, our newly welcomed junior hires are made fun of for the things that they don't do or the things that they say about Christ. Other of us might be going through little. Some of us have been rejected by our families, and others of us haven't experienced as much. So, Lord, we just pray, Father, that we would have the comfort that comes from you, but also we'd be encouraged and we would have hope. So please, Lord, do what you would through your word. Help us to be transformed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. If uh, we go back and, re and review from last week, we see four reasons why Peter, four reasons Peter had given in last week's portion for why these suffering saints could be comforted. We saw that they were to be comforted by the suffering of God's own own beloved son. We saw that in verse 18, it says, for Christ also died for sins, and we know that, and, and we explored how, how the ESV version has suffered for sins, and that's probably uh, the, 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 the more accurate work there, how that Christ also suffered. So if God was willing for his own son to suffer, we don't have to be discouraged when we go through suffering. Neither is it for doing something wrong. Jesus didn't suffer for doing anything wrong. It was according to God's plan. We also looked how we can be comforted by God's purpose, uh, his purpose being accomplished in his son's suffering. We saw that in the second half of verse 18. Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. That Jesus' suffering wasn't a mistake. It wasn't like God had lost control, but that it accomplished exactly the purpose that God had intended. We saw also at the end of verse 18 that we are to be comforted by Christ's glorification. We saw at the end of verse 18, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That Jesus had died in the flesh, but that he was made alive. He was brought back to life in the spirit, talking about a whole new kind of living, uh, uh, the beginning of, of a new humanity. And if Christ was made alive in the spirit, we too will be made alive in the spirit. And last, we saw that we were to be comforted by Christ's proclamation, by the proclamation he made. We saw that in verses 19 and 20. And we knew that this was a challenging verse. Many commentators say that this is the most difficult verse in the whole Bible, or one of them. In verses 19 and 20, in which also Jesus went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. And so we looked there how the resurrected Christ went and proclaimed victory to the fallen angels who had corrupted humanity even further during the days of, uh, of Noah. We're going to look at three more reasons to be comforted this, this morning. Peter continues to give reasons to be comforted while we suffer for the Lord Jesus. And I know, like I said, different, uh, different of us have suffered differently. Some of us have gone through great suffering for our allegiance to Christ, even rejection by our families, and some of us have experienced more minor suffering. But here's reasons to be comforted, and we're going to see three more this morning. In the second half of verse 20, uh, we still have some difficult verses, uh, uh, verses, verses ahead of us. We see first where things get a little bit more easy if you're comfortable uh, and, and, and familiar with the story of Noah. So next we look at be comforted by God's faithfulness in past salvation. Be comforted by God's faithfulness in past salvation. Be comforted by God's faithfulness in past salvation. Now it's impossible to know, and I would have loved to have been there when Peter was writing this. He's proclaiming all these reasons we have to be comforted. And so he, he tells about something that he, Jesus must have told him. Remember, Peter had lived with Jesus for 40 days after Jesus resurrected from the dead. And so, I don't know if Peter took a little, I mean, if Jesus took a side trip and saying, guys, I've got to go do something and I'm going to come back, uh, or exactly how this went down. But Peter knew that Jesus, after being resurrected, after being made alive in, in the spirit with this new body that was still flesh and bones, which could still eat, but was of a different order, of an, of an eternal, immortal order, how he went to proclaim victory to 
the fallen demons. So I can imagine Peter saying to Jesus, well, where have you been? And Jesus says, well, you know all those demons that were doing all those horrible things before the flood? I just went and told them that I won. Right? And that's what verse 19 talks about. Well, as Peter's, as Peter's telling the audience of Asia Minor what happened, he, he launches and he's thinking about what happened during the flood. And he brings them encouragement next. And perhaps he's thinking, well, you know, your circumstance in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey, is really a lot like what Noah and his family experienced. So he brings comfort to the saints by looking at these parallels between the age of Noah and the circumstances that the church currently faced. Now, it is very interesting. We don't exactly know all of the history here, but the story of Noah was important in Asia Minor, in, 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 in modern-day Turkey. Jewish colonists in the second century B.C. went to Turkey, and because of the name of one of the cities there, thought that this is where the ark had landed. Now, maybe that was the beginning of, of Noah becoming important to Turkey, but it's very interesting, and, and, and one commentator writes, that Noah was nevertheless most prominently known biblical figure in Asia Minor, even among the Gentiles. His enduring fame is attested by an amazing series of Noah coins. Noah coins, right? Minted over the reigns of five Roman emperors from, from, from AD 193 to, two, to 253. So now this is after Christianity ha, has spread. But still, there's a series of, of Noah coins. The coins depict Noah and his wife on one side and with the image of the Roman emperor on the other side. That is something that I would have not expected with the Roman Empire. Roman Empire that was doing some horrible persecuting of Christians. Noah was an important part of the Asia Minor story, so much that Noah was on coins, which I just would have never guessed. Now, we don't know really, like, how does Noah become so important? Is it because this letter of Peter spread and people started really getting into Noah? We don't know which came first. But it is interesting that, that Peter launches in to this narrative about Noah we think that the book of 1 Peter was written largely to Gentiles, and he just assumes that they know about Noah. So maybe they did, because Noah was maybe a little like one of their superheroes. So, getting into what the text says. In the, in, in the second half of verse 20, it says, or, or in the middle, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. If we go back to Genesis 6, and this is the passage directly after the passage we, we, we looked at last week where we saw what, the, what those fallen angels were doing. In Genesis 6, 5 through 8, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart because he saw so much of man's wickedness. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 6, 11 through 13 describes how wicked they were during the days of Noah and how much violence has spread across the, the earth and how God was going to destroy all except Noah and his family. It says here in 1 Peter 3, 320, that it was the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. That kept waiting is translated in other parts of the Bible as eagerly waiting. Like how we in Romans 8, 23 waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Or in Hebrews 9.28, how we eagerly wait for the return of Jesus Christ. God was eagerly waiting. His patience was eagerly waiting. And he doesn't specifically say what he was waiting for. If we look at 2 Peter 3.9, though, we see the reason of God's patience. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so we can see there that God was patiently waiting during the days of Noah for people to repent. We see that in 2 Peter 2.5 that Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. 
a proclaimer of righteousness, a herald of righteousness. And we don't know if Noah was out there passing out tracts as he was building the ark, uh, or if he was just proclaiming that God was righteous in the judgment that was coming. But it was very clear that that ark was a symbol of, of salvation. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And it could have taken Noah nearly a century to build this ark. And we don't know, it, it, it could have been a shorter amount of time. He was a preacher of righteousness. And during this time, God is patiently waiting for sinners to repent. We are still in days in which God is patiently waiting, in which he is eagerly waiting. So the question for some of you this morning here is, will you turn to Jesus Christ? We are still those who proclaim righteousness. If you are going to become to God, you must be righteous. You need to have the righteousness of God. And that righteousness is only found in Jesus Christ. Romans 3.22 talks about how that righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. If you are going to escape God's righteous judgment, you need the righteous salvation that he brings. And that is only found through faith in Jesus Christ who died in the place of sinners. God is still patiently waiting. That is one answer that scripture gives why God has not returned, why Jesus has not come back. Because he is patiently waiting. So repent. Put your faith in Jesus Christ today. In a sense, be the reason why Jesus Christ hasn't returned. Come to him for salvation. God was waiting patiently in the days of Noah, and he is still waiting patiently now. We go further in verse 20. It says that uh, the patience of God kept waiting the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. In the whole world, only eight people were saved. Noah and his wife, his three sons and their three wives. And we don't know how many people were killed in that flood. We know that, that, that people were living for centuries. Noah himself would live to 900 years old. I know how many children many of us have had up to 40 or age 50 I don't know how many kids we would have if we lived to 500 or 600. The website Answers in, in, in Genesis speculates that while some people think that, that the population of the earth could have been very small, and the Bible talks about the wickedness on the earth, we know that there was dinosaurs that ate people, we really don't know how many people there were. But it's also possible that the Earth's population was much higher. And the website says, if the growth rate in the pre-flood world was equal to the growth rate in 2000, which is 0.012%, there could have been about 750 million people at the time of the flood. That's shocking. If they even raised that by 0.001% higher, which is an easy thing to speculate based on the uh, life expectancy it could have been 4 billion people. Now, th that is just guessing. But that shows the seriousness of God's judgment. We don't know if it's 1,000 or 4 billion. God chose to only save eight. Brought safely. The root of that word, brought safely, is saved. It is to be rescued, to be delivered to escape, and that saving those eight people was safely was through water, and that through water there isn't so much the place of water, but most commentaries agree, agree that it was by the means of water. The same waters that destroyed the world, the same righteous judgment on the earth was also the righteousness of God saving that. That water lifted that ark. They were saved by the means of water. There's many parallels between the days of Noah and St. Peter's day. St. Peter, I don't know where that came from. Peter's, the saints of Peter's day, there you go. The saints of Asia Minor were also a righteous minority surrounded by a godless culture. They also knew that judgment was coming, that they were waiting for their salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The proof of, the proof of their faith was being tested, just like it was in modern day in ancient Turkey, and just as it is now here. They too, 
in the days of the flood, just like in the days of Peter's epistle, just like now are fixing our hope on the grace to be brought them. They too were living as heralds of righteousness, proclaiming God's excellencies. They too were sharing the shame of their countercultural commitment to the one true God. You can only imagine how foolish they must have looked building this giant boat. How foolish the saints of Asia Minor looked because they didn't go to the public worship of the idols and didn't engage in all that wickedness, just as we can look foolish for what we don't do. See, Peter's audience could be comforted by God's past salvation of Noah, and we could be comforted too. The Lord God is the God who saves. God was faithful to Noah and his family, and he will be faithful to you, dear brothers and sisters, just like he was faithful to every one of those New Testament saints who breathe their last and open their eyes to see the Lord Jesus Christ. See, God's deliverance is not weakened by the world's wickedness. It's not threatened by the world's intolerance. God's salvation is not limited by legislation. And God is not powerless because of pride parades and rainbow marketing. Those haven't changed God's power in the least. He is still the God who saves. So that doesn't matter how, if you can't find another true believer in your school or in your workplace or in your city, it doesn't matter if there's eight left on the whole globe. We can be encouraged this morning. And we don't have to dread as, 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 as we listen to the news and we anticipate a day and in, in our freedoms in America are going to be changed, are going to be limited. We can be encouraged that God is going to save, but even more so, our brothers and sisters in other countries. I mean, there's, there's whole people groups, a million people with one believer among them. Is God going to save them? He is. He's going to be faithful. The saints of Asia Minor were a small community scattered across this, this area that's twice as big as California. They were awaiting the completion of their salvation. They were, in a sense, waiting for the ark to lift. They were waiting for Jesus to come back. We shouldn't be surprised that eight were saved in the flood. We shouldn't be surprised that there's so few of you saved in your workplaces. I know some of you work in places, massive companies, you don't know if there's other saved people there. Maybe you know one. Schools where you don't know if there are any other true, true believers there. Families, where you're the only one that you know loves the Lord Jesus. Jesus himself said, the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. He said, for many are called, but few are chosen. So this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ, he is eagerly waiting. So repent. Repent and put your hope in Jesus Christ alone. It is easy to imagine what those eight in Noah's days went through while building the ark. The scorn, the mockery, the slander. They definitely felt like outsiders. Well, when the rains fell, those eight were vindicated by God's salvation. And we also will be vindicated when Christ returns. So as Peter has already said in 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We need to be comforted by God's faithfulness and past salvations. He saved Noah and his family. He saved the believers in Asia Minor. And he will save us. We also need to be comforted by reflecting upon your conversion. Be comforted by reflecting upon your conversion. We see that in verse 21. Peter says, corresponding to that, and I think that the best guess there is that is the waters. Corresponding to the waters, baptism now saves you. Now, don't get up and leave. We're going to talk about that. Baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So Peter draws a parallel here between the waters of the flood and the waters of baptism. He says corresponding to. The waters of baptism are prefigured by the waters of the flood. Now that's kind of an interesting thing to think about. In what way is the waters of baptism like the waters of the flood? In baptism, going under the water is symbolic of death. Now, we know it's also symbolic, and we'll talk about this, of cleansing, right? Because water cleanses. But it's also symbolic of death. Because what happens if you don't come out of the waters you go into? You will die, right? It's called drowning. The commentary of Thomas Schreiner says this, The waters of the flood deluged the ancient world and were the agents of death. Baptism which was by immersion during the time of the New Testament, occurs when one is plunged under the water. Anyone who is submerged under water dies. Submersion under the water represents death, as Paul suggested in Romans 6, verses 3 through 5. And so you can see what is going on in Peter's mind here. That water, that flood, was the death of perhaps millions, perhaps billions. But the waters of baptism are a death too. In a way. So let's see what Peter says in Romans 6, I mean, Paul says in Romans 6, 3 and 5. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. The waters of baptism symbolize death, but coming out of that water symbolizes our resurrection. We didn't stay dead. We came to new life. So verse 21 ends with how baptism saves us, right? So Peter says it's baptism that saves us, but then he, he, he makes it uh, theologically clear here at the end of verse 21, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And P Peter, Peter is theologically solid. We already saw that in verse 18. Christ also died for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He knows that it is through Jesus' death and resurrection that someone is saved. It's not through baptism alone that someone is saved. There's no salvation without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the means of salvation, not the act of baptism. Now, going back to Thomas Schreiner, i got another quote here. The waters of baptism, like the waters of the flood, demonstrate that destruction is at hand. But believers are rescued from the waters and, and, and rescued from death in that they are baptized with Christ. They're united with Christ in his death and resurrection, who has also emerged, Schreiner says, from the waters of death through his, through his resurrection. And isn't that a powerful picture? That when we go under the water, we are dying with Christ. But when we come out of the water, we've been resurrected with Christ. Yet that act itself does not give us new life. We are not regenerated by going into and coming out of the water. And Peter's going to make that clear. Baptism in itself, though, out of context, doesn't save. But baptism is our saving faith expressed in commanded obedience. Baptism is our saving faith expressed in commanded obedience. Scripture's clear that it's through faith in Jesus Christ that we are saved. And, and we saw that in... in a, Philippians 3, which Sam read earlier. Philippians 3. That we are found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. It's not because of what we do, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. We are made right with God through faith. Or Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. It is not just by simply getting baptized that we are saved. But baptism is God's commanded expression of faith in Jesus Christ. Acts 2.38, Peter said, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God's commanded expression of saving faith was not a sinner's prayer. It was not walking an aisle. It is baptism. So would you be saved? Do you want to be saved? It is biblical to say you are saved by believing in Jesus Christ, by repenting from your sins, and by being baptized. 
That is what Peter said. Have you been saved? Have you been saved? You are a biblical anomaly if you've not been baptized. The only person that would be would be the thief on the cross. This is the only example we have. Do you refuse to be baptized? If you refuse to be baptized, you should have no more confidence in your salvation than if you said, I refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. Or I refuse to obey Jesus Christ. If you say, I refuse to believe in Jesus Christ, you're not saved. If you say, I refuse to obey Jesus Christ, you're not saved. You say, I refuse to be baptized in Jesus Christ? You're disobeying scripture. Say, there's a good chance you're not saved. And I would love to talk to you more about that afterwards. Now, I say that knowing that we have some teens here who may be saved and their parents are encouraging them to, to, to wait as they are demonstrating their, their, their faith. And I'm sure the parents are talking to, to their teens about that. Uh, but those teens are not saying, I refuse to be baptized. If they are believing in Jesus Christ, they are eager to be baptized. And they are waiting until uh, that right time as they talk with their parents saying, yes, I see evidence in your life of your conversion, of your faith, of your obedience, of your repentance. Now it's time to get baptized. And, and, and I could talk to any of you more about that or, or any of the elders. So I... It's good to think about this. Baptism is our saving faith expressed in commanded obedience. It is a commanded act of obedience, which expresses faith so much so that Peter can say, it's baptism that saves you. Peter is more theologically aware to know it's not just dipping in the water that saves you. But as an expression of saving faith, it saves you. So Peter clarifies, though, the nature of baptism. He wants to make sure that there's no confusion. He says, in the, so, so we kind of have looked at the, the bookends of verse 21. Baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now let's go into the middle there. Baptism now saves you, and he has an aside. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. And, and, and he wants you to know the act of baptism doesn't cause forgiveness. Baptism doesn't remove moral impurity like a, a shower removes dirt. And I think when he is saying uh, it is not the removal of dirt from the flesh. He doesn't just mean, oh, it just doesn't clean your outside body. He, 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 he knows that. Baptism, but he is saying, baptism doesn't cleanse your soul. It's not this act itself that cleanses you. And he makes it clear. He says it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the waters of baptism we do see in Scripture are an appropriate metaphor. Even in Psalm 51, they saw, they saw sin as something that's defiling you need to be cleansed from. Psalm 51, verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. It's filthy. I need to get this off. Acts 22, verse 16, uh, this, 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 this is Paul's recording of what Ananias told him uh, uh, after Saul had seen Jesus on the road to Damascus. Acts 22, verse 16, now why do you delay? Saul, Paul, get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. We see there the close union between baptism and salvation. Demonstrate your faith by getting baptized. This is the first act. Go get clean. But the cleansing we know in the rest of Scripture of, of, of what the actual sin is, not the waters of baptism. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. We see that in Titus 3.5. That it is according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. That the cleansing comes from God's Spirit. So instead of, of cleansing us, he says, not the removal of dirt, dirt from the flesh. It doesn't, baptism itself doesn't cleanse you, doesn't purify you. What is it? It's instead an appeal to God for a good conscience. An appeal to God for a good conscience. The word translated uh, 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 appeal has kind of a couple potential meanings, and, 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 and they all are around the same idea. It could mean it's a request, okay? It's, 
an asking. It's a request for a good conscience, a, a, a clean conscience. And, and, and it could say that at, at, at baptism, we come as those who know that they're sinners and who want to be forgiven by God. And that doesn't mean we haven't already prayed, we haven't already put our faith in, in his son, but we just come and are willing to publicly say, I need to be clean too. So it could be an, an asking of God for a, a good conscience. Now, we know it's a testimony of what God has already done. But in the New, New Testament, you believe and are baptized. But the word appeal could also be translated as a pledge. And one commentator writes this. And, 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 and it's a little difficult making this, this argument, although most commentaries go there, just because this would be the first the first recorded use of it as pledge, but it makes sense because in the second century, it's used to, to, to mean this, the same Greek word in contract language. So one commentary writes, it's second century use for pledge or formal answer to questions placed by another. And it was, it was contract language. Will you do this? I pledge, I will. In this case, the commentary writes, baptism is a response to God, an answer to questions placed by the baptizer. So, for example, do, do you commit yourself to follow Christ? I pledge I do. So as this pledge, it could be the pledge of a good conscience, a willingness to, to part with the old wife. The, the old wife, sorry about that. Sorry, Melissa. Uh, uh, a, a pledge to part with the old life. Or it could be a pledge from a good conscience, which finds its source in a good conscience already cleansed by God. So it's a pledge from a good conscience. I know that Jesus has forgiven me, so now I'm ready to pledge. And I think that that's really what matches up with what we do in baptism now. It is a pledge to God from a, from a good conscience. We're, we're not really saying, I'm filthy and I need to get this sin off me now. We're saying, I have my faith in Jesus Christ. I am ready to pledge obedience to him. I am repenting for my sins. My faith is only in Jesus Christ. So this is what Peter says. It's, it's, it's not how you get cleaned. It is a pledge that coming from a good conscience that you have already been cleansed. And, and whether it is request or pledge, both of those have an overlap in that it's an willingness to obey. It's an understanding of a need for forgiveness, and it's a coming to Christ as our only hope. So let's pull this together. We, we've had this, this breakout through some difficult language of Peter, right? It is a little hard that this baptism saves us. So as we work through this, how could this be comforting? Why does Peter go there? I mean, if, if they had confusions about baptism, he probably would have addressed that in, in a more kind of elongated and maybe a little clearer way. So following the flow of thought here, why is this comforting? Why is this a good follow-up to God's past salvation in the days of Noah? Well, because you should be comforted by reflecting upon your conversion. And the saints of Asia Minor could be comforted as they reflected upon their baptism. As that baptism was evidence of their being saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As certainly as Noah's family was saved from the flood through the waters which lifted the ark, a true believer can look back to their baptism and say, I know I'm saved. Not because they did baptism, but because of everything that that baptism signifies. I've died with Christ. I have new life with Christ. They get to look back, and you believers do this who have been baptized. It, you look back as your, it's, it's like your first act of obedience. It's when you symbolically died and were raised with Christ. It's when you were forgiven by God and pledged your obedience to him. It's of your hoping in the resurrection of Christ. It's all of those things. So your baptism should be sweet to you. So when you go through suffering for Christ, you should be comforted by what happened. Because really, when you were baptized, and this would have been very clear in the days of, of, of Peter's day, you were saying, goodbye, world. I leave all of that worship. I'm not bowing down to the emperor. I'm not bringing any more sacrifices to idols. I'm, leave, I'm leaving all of those wicked parties behind. I have aligned myself with Jesus Christ. I'm doing that publicly. I am a believer. I am saved. That baptism was a sweet memory for them, and I trust it is for all of you who have obeyed Jesus Christ. And really, to use New Testament language, you could say all of you who are saved. 
Because there weren't believers who weren't baptized. And there shouldn't be here. Unless you're waiting for us to get a baptismal. And then we're working on that. Let's see here. So your baptism should bring you comforting in the midst of your suffering. It's, it's a mark of your conversion. It's a public testimony of your faith. Of your repentance. It's your public separation from the world. Your pledge from a good conscience. And it will bring you into suffering. Baptism is such a public way of saying, I'm done with the old. Christ is my future. Christ is my all. So you can be comforted by that, by that expression of your faith. And he wanted them to be comforted to people who he was writing to. And he knew that they were all baptized. We also can be comforted by Christ's current and undisputed reign. Be comforted by Christ's current and undisputed reign. Peter continues, and, and, and it's almost if he picks up where he had been going uh, at the end of verse 18. Having been made alive in the Spirit, verse 22, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Be comforted by Christ's current and undisputed reign. See, Peter was present when Christ went into heaven the last time after being on earth with the disciples for 40 days after his resurrection, after making many appearances to them. Acts 1.9, Peter was there when after Jesus had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And just a few days later at Pentecost, Peter tells them what the ascended Jesus was doing right at that moment. We see this as part of his speech at Pentecost, Acts 2.33-36. He talks about how Jesus has therefore been exalted to the right hand of God. The place of all authority, of all power, God's right hand. And, then, and this was in, in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, verse 34, Acts 2. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself said, David said, The Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to my master, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Messiah. Peter, again, in Acts 5, says, Jesus is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. He is exalted at God's right hand now. So, having been made alive in the Spirit, in this, in this kind of new kind of eternal flesh, this immortal flesh, Jesus Christ has sat down at the right hand of God where the Father has given Jesus, the God-man, God the Son become man, final say and final authority in the universe. Now right now we know that there remains many rebels in the universe, but none resist Jesus' sovereign will. No one can. You can say no to Jesus, but you have to do what he's decreed. The Lord doesn't have to fight for the powers of darkness, the demons, to execute the Father's plan. Jesus doesn't have to work to get his way done. Heaven is not a wrestling match. Jesus is the undisputed champion. There is no contest. So Peter specifies at the end of 22 that Jesus' reign extends over the angels after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. And that includes the angels that are obeying God happily and the demons who resent his reign. Now we know that as we live that the Satan's animosity towards God's people and towards the gospel continues. Ephesians 6.12, Paul talks about this. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We're not struggling against people, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world's forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's a kind of language we don't often use. That is what we're wrestling against. 1 Peter 5.8, Peter says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Our enemies, even Satan, are under Christ. Sovereign thumb. His foot is on their neck. He has won. He has authority over them. 
So they have no power which Christ hasn't permitted them and no influence that Christ hasn't allowed them. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 20 uh, 20 and 21, that God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. I say, I say a few of those verses, and there's more, just to show how dominant of a New Testament theme that is. Jesus is supreme over all the demons. Now, Paul's clear. Our struggle is against demonic powers, against these forces of darkness, the spiritual forces of, weak, of wickedness. We know Jesus tells us what Satan's purpose is. In John 8, verse 44, we know that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he's a liar and the father of lies. Satan is a murderer and Satan is a liar. He, his desire is to, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, we see that uh, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And that is Satan's plan. That is, that is the demonic plan. It is to lie and to murder. It is to keep people from believing the gospel through the lies of false gods, which we saw last week, there's demons behind, lies of false gospels, lies of false worldviews, lies of, of, about human gender and, 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 and sexuality, lies of false promises of happiness. I don't exactly understand how demons are behind those, but demons and Satan is behind all of those lies that would keep anyone from believing the true gospel. See, what we know from Satan in Scripture is that he wants every soul here in hell. And he will use whatever tools God allows him, whatever, whatever, whatever leash Jesus permits him to use lies to murder us. Now, we know that those who are truly saved in Christ will not fall away, right? But Satan, looking and watching... He wants you to abandon the faith. He wants you to leave the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants you to forsake your baptism, your public allegiance and testimony to Jesus Christ. He wants you to doubt the truth of the gospel. He wants you to doubt the truth of God's word. He wants you to leave, and he wants to stop anyone who hasn't believed from believing. The God of this world has blinded them to the, the light, oh, so phrased, the, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. He doesn't want them to see it. He wants to gouge their eyes out. That's what he wants to do with us as believers, to gouge our eyes out so we don't see Jesus Christ and his beauty. But, yes, Peter tells them, Satan is like a lion seeking to destroy you. But he's already given them this hope. Jesus is at God's right hand. Jesus has gone into the heavens. Jesus has the angels and authorities and powers subjected to him. So we can be comforted as we are surrounded by those lies. And we are surrounded by an ever-increasing barrage on truth of God's word. I want to finish with Romans 8, verses 31 to 39. And Paul ties some of these things, these themes together. And I know that these are encouraging verses. Romans 8, verses 31 to 39. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he, is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Look at the comfort there. He's at the right hand of God, interceding for his people. So who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword... 
Just as it's written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. None of those things can separate because Jesus Christ has conquered them all. He has conquered those angels and those demons, the authorities and powers. They've been subjected to him. So Satan might want nothing more than for us to forsake our baptism, to forsake our commitment to Jesus Christ, to forsake our faith expressed in obedience. But God the Father will keep you. It doesn't matter what happens in America in the next 20 years or in the next century, or in the next 200 years. We don't have to fear what they fear. We exalt Christ as Lord. And that's what Peter has been doing in these passages. He told us in 1 Peter 3.15, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Hollow Christ as Lord. Show how holy he is in your hearts. And now he's given us all of these reasons to be comforted. Most of them just focusing on Jesus Christ. So let's hollow Christ as Lord in our hearts, no matter what suffering we face for our commitment to him. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the encouragement that we've received from this word. Lord, it is sobering. Um, You are holy and you are just. And the judgment you brought upon the world in the days of Noah was just. And yet, Father, you are just, but also the justifier. And we thank you so much, Father, that you have declared us who believe as righteous in your Son, Jesus Christ. So we rejoice, Lord, in the way that you saved Noah and his family. We rejoice, Lord, in uh, thinking about that past salvation, that you were faithful and that you kept your promise. And, and, and that's just a, like, that was just physical salvation. Lord, how much sweeter is the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. And so we do, uh, who, who have obeyed in baptism, we look back and we are encouraged, Lord, that you have brought us to, to, to faith, Lord, and that we, that we obeyed. And that obedience in baptism is just the beginning of a life of submission to your Son. Thank you, Father, for working in our hearts to give us faith. And yet, Lord, we do pray for those who have not yet believed. I pray, Lord, that they would respond in humility to the fact that you are, you are eagerly waiting for sinners to repent, that your patience is waiting, that that is why Christ hasn't come back. That's why he hasn't returned, why human history has not been wrapped up, because you are waiting for your elect to repent. Father, we thank you for that good news, Lord. We pray, Lord, for the comfort of of the saints who are here this morning. Father, may they be comforted um, as they suffer for you. And whether that's in in, in classrooms, in workplaces, with family members, as they reach out to neighbors. Lord, I pray that they would be comforted as they see that salvation is closer than when we first believed. Lord, as they look back at, at, at how baptism, they publicly confess their faith in your son. How they rejoice, Lord, that they had died with Christ, but that they've been resurrected with Christ, that Christ has been made alive in the spirit, that we too, with his resurrection, will one day be resurrected and glorified. And Father, we rejoice that, 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 that Christ has won, that he is victorious, that although we do wrestle against principalities and powers and the, the, the powers of this darkness, Lord, and we feel uh, the oppression of so many lies. I know, Lord, uh, we're scared. I'm scared for my children as the lies get bolder and bolder and bolder. Lord, we pray for their salvation, that they would not succumb to Satan's lies, Lord, that you would give them true faith in Jesus Christ, that we would have the blessing of seeing them publicly baptized and confessing their allegiance to Christ as Lord, because he is Lord, and we rejoice in him as Lord, and we rejoice that he is returning, and we pray, Lord, that you would, as uh, Peter talked about in the beginning, that you would guard us through faith, uh, that your power would guard us through faith for that salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In Jesus' name, amen.